Can you join me in thanking the praise team this morning for their service to us? See, the reason that we sing this morning, the reason we do that not just on Easter, but every other day is because everything they just said was true. Right? He lives, right? Death has been arrested. He, forever he'll be glorified. All those things are the amazing truth that we get to celebrate today on Easter and every day um, that our Redeemer lives. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm, I'm asking you to grab those and turn to Mark chapter 16. If you do not have a Bible, uh, there is a black one in the seat back in front of you. If you grab it and get to page 905, you're going to be with us in Mark 16. We want you to be able to follow along with us as we uh, talk this morning and realize that we're not talking about our opinion, but we're sharing you truths from God's eternal, timeless word. And there's no doubt, right? There's no doubt as I stand before you this morning that our world is changing at a, at a rapid pace. Uh, I, got a, I got a little reminder that this week on, on Monday night, I was putting our five-year-old uh, twin daughters to bed. And one of their favorite things to do at bedtime is to stall, right? They're never thirstier than they are at bedtime. They want a thousand stories. And so uh, they always ask for, tell us a story about when you were a kid and I've, I've emptied the barrel. And so now they're trying to get very specific. Monday's request was this, tell us a story when you were a kid and you watched the Sonic movie. I was like, well, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie first came out in 2016. So like I didn't watch the Sonic movie when I was a kid, right? And, and I thought, you know what? I told him, I was like, I'm actually, I'm going to blow your mind for a second. And Ray was like, what? And I was like, I guess, okay, you don't know that saying. That just means I'm going to surprise you, all right? And so then I was like, D you, you might be surprised to know this. We didn't have Netflix when I was growing up. Like, we didn't have Disney Plus. We didn't have, like, in fact, you just couldn't turn on a TV and select anything that you wanted to watch because those things didn't even exist yet. And Raya said, whoa, you just opened my nose. And it was my turn to be confused. I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, did you mean I blew your mind? I was like, all right, you're close enough, right? And so I went on and I was like, by, by the way, like our TV only had a few channels, right? And, and you had to watch whatever that channel decided to put on. And, and the worst part was, as a kid, the only time kids shows were on were Saturday mornings. And she tried again. She goes, oh, man, my brain just fell out, which was closer, right? But still not quite right. And, and I didn't go on to tell her about and tell them about cell phones and smartphones, the internet, because, again, I'd already opened her nose and made her brain fall out. So I thought that was enough for one night. But our world has changed massively in our lifetimes. And it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. But whenever there's, there's a massive change that occurs, there's, there's always opportunities that come with it. But just because opportunities are there doesn't mean people take advantage of them. Now, I'm going to say uh, in the name of a company, and if you're my age or older, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're younger than me, you might not. And it's Kodak. Right? Kodak was, a, was, a, was dominated the photography industry. And I'm about to open some noses this morning. All right? If you're under 30, here's how you used to take pictures. You had to carry something called a camera. It wasn't on your phone. Right? And you had to put this thing called film into it. And you would take all these photos and you'd have no idea whether it was a good photo or not because you couldn't see it. Right? And then you'd have to take the film out and drive somewhere like Walmart and hand it to them and pay them money. And in about a few days' time, you could go back and pick up photos that weren't on your computer. They were just little things that you could hold. Right? And Kodak dominated this industry. Right? There's even a phrase like, have a Kodak moment. And uh, you can hear, what, as I described all that, why digital photography is a thing. Because it's so much better. Now, did you know that there was an, actually an employee of Kodak who created digital photography? He invented it. And he took it to his bosses at Kodak. And they're like, you can't show this to anybody. We're not going to develop this. We're not going to support that. You have to hide this and not tell anyone because it will ruin our market. And guess what happened? A couple years later, somebody else found the technology. 
And now Kodak is pretty much irrelevant. Or Blockbuster. Right? There was a thing called movie stores where people had to go drive to a movie store, get out of their car, walk in, and pick out a VHS or a DVD. And then there was this, we were all excited about Blu-ray for about six months, and then streaming came out. Nobody cared anymore, right? But you, you buy, you, you'd rent this thing for a night. You'd have to take it back the next night. And Netflix is largely credited for ruining Blockbuster. There's actually one Blockbuster left. I'm more surprised that there is a Blockbuster more than I would be that there weren't any. But did you know Netflix actually came to Blockbuster early on when they were struggling and asked Blockbuster to buy them out? And Blockbuster was like, no, we're not going to do that. And then they, Netflix created streaming, and now Blockbuster's gone. All these opportunities come when these massive changes come. It doesn't mean right, that people take advantage of them. Now, there, no matter how much the world changes, right, no matter how many opportunities come from those changes, all of them pale in comparison to the change and subsequent opportunity that we celebrate today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, has ripple effects that not only affect today, but will carry on into all eternity. And there's no other event that is more relevant to your life and your future than it, which means this, the single most important thing that ever happened to any of us occurred around 2,000 years before we were even born. And yet, just like with things like Kodak and Blockbuster, but on a far bigger scale, many people miss out on the opportunity that the resurrection actually provides for us. And so my goal today is simple. I want to ensure you know how big a deal this actually is. And my prayer today has been that nobody here would miss out on the opportunity that Jesus provides. So I'm going to invite Chris Mathis forward. He's going to be reading for us Mark's account of the resurrection, which is Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word? Morning, Chris. Morning. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just as sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in white robes sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Look, this is what they laid his body, where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Thank you, Chris. You guys have a seat. Please keep your Bibles there to Mark 16. I really appreciate Mark's account of the resurrection. We'll get into that a little bit more uh, coming up. But the first thing that I want to point out to you um, that should, if you, if you read the Gospels through, should be somewhat surprising to us, but it's undeniable. And it's that nobody saw this coming. 
Right? And, and, and Jesus spent a lot of time trying to prepare people for this. And uh, Larry Bird was my favorite basketball player growing up. And my favorite story about uh, Larry Bird is uh, one night the Celtics were playing the Sonics. And it was a tie game with just a few seconds left. And uh, the Celtics call timeout and they huddle up. And, and when coaches draw up plays after timeouts, they, like, that's when they get most paranoid and most secretive. Like the NBA actually has a contract that their uh, broadcast partners can't put a camera in those huddles because they think other teams might be stealing the plays. All right, so this is the play the coach is going to draw up. They're going to hide it from the Sonics. They're going to try to win the game. And they come out of the timeout. And Larry Bird walks up to Xavier McDaniel, who's playing for the Sonics and was guarding him. And he's like, he's like I want to tell you everything that we just talked about. He points to a spot on the floor. He's like, I'm going to run to that spot on the floor, and they're going to throw me the ball, just so you know. And I'm going to catch the ball, and I'm going to turn around. I'm going to shoot it in your face, and we're going to win the game. And Xavier McDaniel is the one who tells the story. And he's like, he ran to that spot on the floor. And despite everything I tried to do, he caught the ball. He turned around. He shot it in my face. And they won the game, right? I wish I had that much confidence in anything that I could do in my life, that I could call my shot that way. But there were multiple times. Did you know there were multiple times that Jesus actually did this with his resurrection? He would tell people about it. Everything that happened to him, everything that we're going to read this morning, he told his followers that everything that did happen was going to happen. And they had these really strange reactions to it. One of those times is in Mark 9. And it says that he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And guess what he was? They will kill him. And they did. And after he's killed, he will rise three days later. And he did. But look at this reaction. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. So he, he, multiple times he's trying to tell people what's going to happen. Not only that, Jesus consistently did all these amazing things. He's these countless, performed countless miracles. But despite all that he did, despite telling people what would happen in advance, nobody seemed to believe it, nobody seemed to grasp it, nobody seemed to understand it or expect it. And we can see that from the action of these women here early in Mark 16. These women, Mary Magdalene, Mary and Salome, they aren't, these aren't just random people. Okay, listen to what we're told about them in the chapter previous. Mark chapter 15, look at verse 37. This is Mark's description of Jesus dying on the cross. And he says, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Verse 39, when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now listen to what Mark tells us in verse 40. There were also women watching from a distance among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger, the James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. And many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. These three specifically, he mentions in chapter 15, the start of chapter 16, they obviously had a close relationship with Jesus and his disciples. They traveled with them. They served them. They, they took care of them. They, they ministered to them. They learned from them. They were there when he would give the fuller descriptions of his teachings. They would have been there when he talked about rising from the dead. Right? Mark, and then Mark makes sure to point out in chapter 15 that they were among the few faithful who remained. At the end, when he's dying on the cross, when most of the disciples have fled or abandoned Jesus, these women stayed with him, which means they saw it all. They saw the excruciating uh, suffering. They saw the brutal beating. They, they heard him cry out. They witnessed the moment of his death. And then Saturday comes, and it was the Sabbath. And so all, all, everybody who observed the Jewish law knew they could do nothing on the Sabbath. So they had to spend an entire day waiting and as early as possible, right? Verse 1 tells us that it was at the sunrise of Sunday morning. This is the earliest moment they could by the Jewish law. They go to the tomb. 
And they're going to the tomb to find the body of Jesus and to anoint his body. Now, this was a Jewish custom that was done to honor a person after their death where spices and aromatic oils would be poured over the body to counteract the smell of decay, which tells us what? It tells us, number one, this was an act of devotion. These women still very much are serving and ministering and caring to Jesus. This was, this was a, a deference and honor and respect to him. But number two, it tells us they were not in any way expecting to find him alive. They're expecting to find a decaying body. Because in their experience, the one thing that dead people always did was, you know, stay dead. Which is why when they enter the tomb, they're so startled to find what they actually find. Verse 5 tells us that they're alarmed. The, the Greek word there is they had overwhelming distress at what is highly unusual. And despite the shock, the angel who's there tells them not to be alarmed. And then he tells them what happens. Verse 6. He says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they put him. And in that moment, these women become the first to hear the greatest news ever. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a moment. But from that moment comes an eternity's worth of impact. There's not a single thing that's left untouched or unchanged by it. Here's what we find later in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to the church at Corinth, and he says, I passed on to you, and listen to this, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So in that passage, what Paul is laying out for the church at Corinth is the gospel story. When you hear the word gospel, that literally just means good news. It's the good news of Jesus. And he describes it to them as most important. Don't miss that, okay? Don't, don't, don't just skip on that part. That's the Bible telling us there's nothing else more important, more relevant, or more significant than the gospel story. And he breaks it down in three parts. Number one, that Christ died for our sins. Number two, that he was buried, which means he was very much dead. And number three, that he rose on the third day and he was very much alive again. All three of those are vital. Because without a single one of them, the power would be gone. So I want to walk us through this. Is why this is most important. Because the Bible's teaching and message on this is very clear. That we human beings have a major, major problem. And in Jesus, and hear me, in Jesus alone, we have an awesome solution to that major problem. The first we need to understand the bad news. Romans 3 tells us that all of us are sinners and fallen short. We've all fallen short of God's standard. Romans 6 tells us the wages, right, the cost, the penalty, what we owe because of our sins is death. And that's not even the bad part. Ephesians 2 says that because of our sin, right, that the wrath of God is actually stored up and waiting to be unleashed on us. And it gets worse in John 3, which says that anybody who's, who's not believed in Jesus Christ stands condemned already because they have not believed in God's one and only Son. And so we need to be clear on this, even though it's heavy. Me and you and everyone, right? We all have this in common. We're all sinners. And that's not a small problem. Our sins, which is, which is any time that we step outside of God's design and commands, anytime we act outside, think outside, operate outside those things, our sins leave us in a guilty state before God. I'm guilty. There's nothing that I can do to be innocent. And in my guilt, the penalty for sin is death. That's why humanity is a terminal condition. 
Right? The death rate for humans is still 100%. But it's not just the physical death that's the problem. There's a spiritual death that comes with it because my guilt separates me. It puts a barrier between me and the God who created me. And so if there's nothing that's done to fix that, there's nothing that's done to pay for my sins, then I go to my eternity spiritually guilty and I will spend all eternity enduring the right and just wrath of God for my sins. It's why Ephesians 2 says that that wrath is stored up and waiting for me. It's why John 3 says that I would be condemned already. Yes, I'm talking about hell. The Bible is clear. It's not a cartoonish place with with fake fire and and a red guy with a tail and a pitchfork. It's a very, very real place that no one should ever want to be. This is where God's love is so immense and so overwhelming. It is God that we've rebelled against. It's God that we've rejected in our sin. It's God's design and commands and ways that I have turned against. And in his perfection, he would be fully just and fair to send me to hell forever. It's what I've earned and what I deserve. And yet that God, the one that I'm guilty before, has made a way for me and for you. He sent his son Jesus to become a man and take on human form and live a sinless life so that Jesus could step into our place and become our sacrifice. God sent his own son to a brutal, excruciating death on the cross, all to pay the price for my sins if I believe in him. So Romans 5 says that God has proven his love. There's nothing left to prove. He's proven his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6 continues, it's not just that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And after dying on the cross, when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved several things. Number one, he proved who he said he was, that he was who he said he was, because only God can do that. I mean, you can check history, you can check resumes, there's no one else who's coming back from their own grave. Number two, it proves, and this is crucially important, it proves that God accepted his sacrifice for our sins. Had Jesus stayed dead, we would have known, it would have proven that he only died for his own sins. But since he was the sinless, spotless lamb of God, he could step in and be our substitute and God accepted his sacrifice and therefore God raised him. And thirdly, and this is the game changer, he proved that death is indeed conquerable. See that longing deep in your heart and your soul for something after this life that every human being, every civilization has ever had? The Bible tells us that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. And the reason is this, because he's eternal. He's made a way for us to have eternal life with him. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, death is not death. It is merely a passing from a life of struggle and pain and toil and separation to a life that is of perfection and peace forever. That's why Jesus, when he was here, could look Martha in the eyes right after her brother died and say this to her. He could say, I, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. But you see, in order for that to be reality, in order for us to have our sins forgiven in full, in order for us to ever experience that eternal life in heaven, Jesus had to sacrifice himself to pay for our sins. He had to fully die and be dead in order to pay that price. And then he had to rise again in order to complete the entire thing. Because a dead Savior can't save anyone, and a hope that's not living is no hope at all. But praise God this morning, my Redeemer lives. He lives, and there are endless millenniums to come that I will get to experience in his presence all because he rose. And these three women, 
They were the first to hear the most incredible news the world will ever hear. They were the first to be told the news that would change everything. Now you add to that that Jesus is their close personal friend. They loved him. They were devastated. You'd expect the reaction to be of pure joy, right? You expect the reaction to be exuberance and jubilee. They're so excited. That's not what happened, is it? Look at verse 8. Mark tells us they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. This is why I love Mark's account of the resurrection so much because I find the reaction of these women fascinating. As you might expect, they're stunned, right? They're, they're overwhelmed by emotion to the point of there's actually a physical response in their body. But it's not joy, and it's not excitement, it's not relief, it's not giddiness, right? Don't get me wrong, those, those were all coming. But their initial reaction, Mark tells us their initial reaction is they take off running from the tomb, and, and then they felt three things. And the first was simply this, it was trembling, Mark tells us as they ran from the tomb, there were two things that overwhelmed them, and one of them is trembling. It's the Greek word traumos, which has two meanings. Which it, the first is just to literally physically shake with fear. And the second would be someone trying to complete a task that they feel unqualified to do, and both are fitting here. Right? They, they, they just saw something they never expected to see, something that they never in their wildest imaginations would have, would have believed, and now they're the first to see it. And secondly... Do you remember what the angel told them in verse 7? He told them that it's their job to now go and tell the disciples. They, as women in first century Israel. Do you know how the culture of first century Israel treated women? A woman's testimony wasn't even accepted in court. It's now their job to go make known the wonders of the resurrection. And their first job is to go tell a group of men. How would they ever listen to them? Second thing that they're overwhelmed by, Mark tells us, is astonishment. This is the Greek word ecstasis. It means to be jolted out of position. The idea is here is that you're going down a path that you feel good about, and all of a sudden you're just, you're just jolted, you're shocked out of it to a different place. It's someone whose entire worldview has just been shattered. I'd say that's fitting. That fits pretty perfectly, doesn't it? Because they traveled with, and they ate with, and they served, and they listened to, and then they watched. They were there. They watched Jesus die. And they're devastated because their worldview was clear. They thought he was the Messiah, right? This amazing human leader who had had authority from God, power from God, sent to restore Israel. But this, man, they weren't ready for this. They had no context for someone defeating their own death, and now they're reeling. And the third emotion that Mark says they feel is just fear. They're afraid. And the Greek word there is phobeo, which, which has two meanings as well. It's to, it's to be scared into fleeing, which we see, and to be struck with reverential awe. We know they're scared into fleeing. Mark tells us they went out and ran from the tomb. Safe to assume there's some awe there too. Because they thought they had a high view of Jesus. It turns out he was much bigger than they thought. They thought they had a high view of his purpose in coming and what he was there to do. It turns out he was, what he was setting out to do was much bigger and much grander than they thought. And I love the tension that verse 8 leaves us in. 
Because throughout his gospel, right, Mark wanted his readers to confront the awe and the tension and the fear mixed with joy that that people felt when Jesus' power was revealed to them. And as these women flee from the tomb, here's where the situation is. Jesus Christ has defeated death, and this changes everything that they've ever thought or known to really be true. He is a power beyond what they thought. He is a power that is to be in awe of and, yes, afraid of. And what are they going to do with that? And Mark wants to leave his readers in that exact same tension. He's asking us that exact same question. And I told you to start in times of massive change, there's always opportunity, but not everybody takes advantage of the opportunity. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus was a moment. It was a moment that changed everything. Nothing has ever been the same since and nothing ever will be again. But what lays before you this morning is this. It's an invitation, an opportunity for your own moment. For your own radical change. What lays before you in the gospel and in the empty tomb of Christ is is the chance to step from being your own God to letting Jesus be yours. It's a step from certain death to life. It's a step from being condemned already to being saved forever. It's a step from being bound for hell, certainly, to being assured heaven forever. John 3 puts it clearly. That God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will what? Will not perish, but have eternal life. And so my I just suggest this morning... The very wisest thing that we could do today in response to Jesus' resurrection is to respond the exact same way these women did. You see, I think their threefold reaction is so much more appropriate and, and right than it actually sounds at first read. Because I think, I think everybody, in, in, in light of the empty tomb of Jesus, I think we all need to tremble. And it may not be fun, and it may not be what, like encouraging to you to start, but I think it's really wise for a terrifying truth to wash over us. And the terrifying truth is this, right? I am guilty before a holy God. I'm a sinner. I'm unclean. I'm unworthy. I owe that God a debt that I cannot pay. And if that does not terrify you, you do not understand how big a deal that is. And what's worse than that is that there's nothing that I can do in and of my power, in and of myself, and in my actions that I can do to make myself innocent. The only option that lays before me, if I want to be my own solution, right, the only possible way that I can pay the price for my sins, you know what it is, is by experiencing hell for all eternity. That's it. And if that reality hits us, you know what? We better tremble. And then let that trembling lead us to astonishment. From our position, we need to be jolted. We need to be jolted out of any worldview that we could be our own solution. We need to be jolted out of any worldview that that tells me that by going to church or by being a good person or by having my good outweigh my bad or, or maybe I can just make some deal with God in the end, I need those things to be obliterated in my life. I need to be completely shattered because I'm guilty case closed. And once I obliterate all those false notions that I could ever be my own solution, I should be astonished that the very one who should condemn me, the very one who's right to kill me and send me to hell, the very one who's innocent and pure and holy is the very one who stepped into my place on my behalf. He's the very one who absorbed my costs and took the whips and took the nails and paid my price all to offer me love and forgiveness and grace and eternal life that I have never deserved and never earned. I should be astonished at that. 
And that astonishment that should then lead to fear. More than anything, I should be afraid of going through this life without Jesus Christ. I should be sorely afraid of facing the possibility of death around every corner without having trusted my soul in eternity to him. I should be afraid of standing before God without being able to plead Jesus on my behalf. I should be afraid of anything in my life that's been keeping me from coming to him. I should be afraid of anything in my life that's distracting me from him. I should be afraid of not telling those that I love dearly that Jesus has made a way for them that they desperately, desperately need. I should be afraid of ever fearing the response of human beings more than I fear the one who defeated death. And I need to be afraid of realizing at the end of my life that I accomplished a lot of things, but none of them actually mattered. See, Jesus' resurrection was a moment that changed everything. It opens up for us life for all eternity. It gives us hope that's undefeated. It promises a reunion with loved ones who've gone before us who are in Jesus Christ. It gives us victory in the face of all suffering and death itself, but only if we respond in the right way. And so there's a couple ways I want to call you to respond this morning. And the first is this, that if you have already done this, you've already placed your faith in Jesus, you've, you've, you've trusted in his death and resurrection to save you, then the first response I have for you is just simply this, to repent of anything you've elevated above him. There's nothing bigger, there's nothing better, there's nothing more relevant, there's nothing more significant than Jesus or his kingdom. I was taking a, a class on marriage counseling one time and, and, and they said one, one bit of advice that they've always shared with people is if, if you put all the effort into that, that you're putting into your affair, into your marriage, your marriage will be salt. And as the church, we are the bride of Christ and, and we've been saved and redeemed by him, but we have, pardon the analogy, we have affairs from time to time, don't we? We have things that get the best of our hearts, get the best of our time, get the best of our money, get the best of our mental intuition, get the best of our passion, things that, are, that, that, are, that should be devoted to Jesus and belong to him. I'm not saying that, that you can't have a career. I'm not saying that you don't need to care about anything else, but we all know when it's out of bounds, don't we? We all know when it's out of bounds. So the question that we need to ask is this. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every knee, there's a day coming in which every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And the question I want you to ask is, are the things that I'm doing now, the things that I'm pursuing now, the things that I'm chasing now, the things that are getting the best of me now, will they matter at all on that day? Because if they won't, change course. Put Jesus in his rightful place in your life. Commit to gathering with his church. Practice the things that he modeled for us. Seek out ways to serve him. Pursue him. Try to become more like him. Just give him more of you. Secondly, to anybody who has it, and this should be shouted from the rooftops today. If you have not, please, please, please find forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ this morning. If you came in here have not yet trusted in him for your salvation, that means that you remain guilty before God. The Bible says that you stand condemned already. The case is closed. You're guilty. And without the intervention and grace of Jesus Christ, you are bound for hell. But praise God, he's made a way. He sent Jesus to suffer excruciatingly and die on your behalf. And Jesus rose again so that if you believe in him this morning, 
Your sins, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. You'll be made right with God. He will save you completely. He'll grant you eternal life in heaven. But there is no other way. There's no other way other than a complete and total trust in him. Will you believe in him today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. God, I thank you that the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. I thank you that it's the truest truth in all of creation. And Lord, what it lays before us is a response, an opportunity to respond in a way that would be pleasing to you. And so, Lord, for those of us who've gotten distracted, who've acted like our career or our hobby or our sport or our interest could somehow have more relevance, to somehow take more of our passion and more of our time than you and your kingdom, than you literally saving souls and changing eternities. God, would you make those things abundantly clear to us and when we lay them at the foot of the cross this morning and find your grace just as wondrous and powerful as the day we first believed. Father, for anybody who's within the sound of my voice and have never, ever trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins to be made right with you, to pass from certain death to certain life forever. God, I pray that you'd save their soul right now, that they would just simply say, I believe. I believe, God, I need to be saved. I need you to forgive me. And would you, would you pass them into eternal life in this moment? We ask this in his powerful and awesome name. Amen.